This is the Ogilvy Podcast. I'm Chris Saletti. And I'm Carter Pearson. It's interesting that in a world where machines are becoming more and more important and more fundamental and able to do more for us, that actually this social aspect, the way we interact with each other within companies or within cities or within countries, plays a, a huge and, and, in my view, a growing economic role. That was Ryan Avent, an economics columnist at The Economist and author of the book The Wealth of Humans. A few weeks ago, I sat down with Ryan to touch on the major themes in his book, one of them being automation and the future of human labor. But Ryan also spends a lot of time in his book on the idea of social capital. Wait, what's social capital? Social capital is the network of social connections that exist between people and their shared values and norms of behavior, which enable and encourage mutually advantageous social cooperation. You can tell I don't really talk that way. That's exactly how Webster defines social capital. But basically, it's the intangible values inside our heads that are shared by our cultures. And that's the interesting thing about social capital. And unlike plain old capital, social capital exists only in our minds. But shared social capital also exists within nations, cities, and even companies. Think about um, the most successful firms of today, Apple, Google. They have very strong social capital. But I also think it's more than just social cooperation. It's about shared knowledge and processes for actually making stuff. Teams of people with different knowledge areas working together and the cultures are the, the sort of way that firms work out how people ought to work together in order to get these productive things done. And that it seems to me that that's become more and more important over time. Now, with that, that, that has a few sort of important implications for society. I mean, one is that whether or not you are inside these organizations that have this important social capital matters a lot for how rich you're able to be or how much of the gains from growth you're able to capture. You know, being inside a firm that has really productive valuable social capital is great for you uh, as a worker. Being outside it is, is really bad. And so where you are, the communities in which you belong matter hugely to how, how high a quality of life you can have. I think there's a recognition that when the social capital or the culture of the firm is really important, then you need to have people there in the office participating within that culture in order for it to have its desired effect. It's kind of fundamentally enjoyable to work in a in an environment where you're working with ideas, you're working with other really smart, highly motivated people. This has me thinking about the sort of new ideas that have popped up recently uh, designed to influence corporate culture in a positive sense. Uh, and these seem to come from Silicon Valley and startup culture. I'm thinking of free lunch, free dry cleaning, basically anything that would fall under something I call on-premise pampering. Yeah, yeah. So I think these are good in some sense. I mean, who doesn't love free dry cleaning? And they can certainly help keep morale up, which helps a company's social capital. But there are also downsides to these. I think it comes with trade-offs to the individual in that they're maybe investing less time in, in other parts of their lives, the community, and, uh, and things of that nature. And that has kind of negative spillover effects, because if you're someone in the community who's not at these high-powered firms, the neglect of the, the kind of local organizations, the local social capital that might be good for you, that, that ends up hurting you. So Ryan mentions the people who are left behind, those who don't work at places with this sort of strong social capital. 
And we're looking ahead at a future where not only will fewer people work at these big companies, but fewer people will actually be working altogether. Wait, fewer people are going to be working overall? Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. Uh, right now, we're on the precipice of the fourth industrial revolution. The first was steam power. The second was electric. The third was digital. And you can think about the difference between the third and fourth industrial revolutions as a difference between a computer screwing on a toothpaste tube and a computer driving you to work. So that's really the difference between Charlie's dad and Charlie in the Chocolate Factory losing his job and 10,000 taxi drivers in New York City doing the same. Yeah, I guess so. Okay. Since the Industrial Revolution, companies have been using machines to do stuff that uh, humans used to be able to do. And it's been great in a lot of ways, right? It's, it's made us able to produce a lot more stuff and be richer. At the same time, we were able to move people into better jobs, earning higher salaries, not doing backbreaking work. So what Ryan's saying here is that in every other industrial revolution, people have gone from doing hard work to doing easier work. But as computers and tech improve and are able to do, quote-unquote, human jobs, we may be entering a transition from work to no work. And I think we were lulled into complacency, those of us who are of working age now, by the fact that in the 70s and 80s and 90s and even the 2000s, things didn't appear to be changing anything like they were changing for you know, our, great, our grandparents or great-grandparents. People born at the beginning of the century saw just astounding changes. They saw the rise of the automobile and, and airplanes and television, stuff that just really transformed the way we live. Things got a bit better for us, like televisions got bigger and color at screens, and then they got flat and, and cheaper, but, you know, still a television. And so to now be arriving at this place where technology is improving very rapidly, I think we're, we're accustomed to thinking these are going to be incremental improvements. They're not going to be the sort of fundamentally transformative stuff that happened in the 19th and early 20th century. But I think that I think they will. Do you agree with that? Have we really not seen any innovations that we wouldn't consider transformative? Well, yes and no. I think communication technology has definitely been transformative. When my grandmother left her hometown in 1945 to move to Washington, D.C., she couldn't talk to her relatives without pen, paper, and the U.S. mail service. Now she can see them through her iPhone. That's a transformative change. But do I think the ability to order a taxi or a burrito from my iPhone is transformative? No. I think you're right about that. I mean, especially things like Uber and Seamless, which people talk about being so disruptive, to use that buzzword. These things are great, but they're not fundamentally transformative. Uh, not Certainly not the way cars and airplanes were. Um, the, things like Uber and Seamless have made things easier for us, no doubt, and made things less stressful in some senses. But with Seamless, you're still ordering food from a restaurant, which is delivered to your home by a human being, and it takes it 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, and you're, with Uber, you're still hailing a cab, and it's driven by a human being, and that cab has to sit in traffic. It charges you by distance and time. It's not a fundamental change. It's not the airplane. Right. If you think about a world in which computers are able to drive all sorts of vehicles, that's going to look really, really different in a lot of ways. It'll mean tens of thousands of people who die every year in car accidents won't die. Those are huge and important changes. So what other changes do you think we could see? Well, we, we touched on communication a little bit. I also think our physical spaces will change. If we have a driverless fleet of cars who are always being used, never sitting in traffic, and you know, constantly refilling themselves at electric charging stations, I could see you know, midtown parking garages being the Soho loss of 2060. Yeah, but all this does tie back to the concept of less people working. 
Yeah, if machines can drive cars and do human tasks, there's going to be less jobs. But there will also be more wealth overall and a need to create some sort of universal basic income to support these people's basic needs. Yeah, Ryan mentions in the book this idea of having to transform our social safety nets. And this is just going to have a huge impact on on how we look at life overall when work is not the center of, of, our, of our days. Um, but I mean, the idea of universal basic income, if you told someone that they don't have to work, but they'll still be paid the same amount of money, most people are going to say, that's great. Where can I sign up for that? But there's so much more to it than that. Work ends up playing a huge role in society. I don't, I'm not sure that we all appreciate how, how important it is, is the way that we divvy up resources, which, which is in itself pretty important. But it also provides us with a structure for our, our days and our lives. Uh, you know, it's, it's how we know what we're supposed to do most days. Work is the thing that kind of encourages us to go out and develop particular skills that are useful to society. And then it also gives us, you know, I think a sense of purpose, of meaning in our lives. You know, not for everyone. I think some jobs provide that to a greater extent than others. It certainly seems to be the case that when people lose their jobs and find it difficult to find a new one, that it's not just the loss of income that hurts. It's the loss of a sense that, of you know, control over their lives and uh, the sense that they're contributing to society. So you know, whatever solutions we come up to to solve the problem of automation, they can't just be about an important part of it is making sure people still have the money they need to buy food or, 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 or housing or things like that. But that, that's not the only vacuum that's going to need to be filled. We're also going to have to figure out how to organize society in new ways so that people feel they're contributing, so that they're not bored to the point where they're abusing drugs in, in, in unhealthy ways. And we don't really have a good idea what that world's going to look like yet. It, it's gonna, I think it's going to take us a while to, to, to figure out what works. So again, this isn't our first rodeo with technology change. But if this is truly the fourth industrial revolution, we're going to have to look at how we as a society support people whose jobs were automated in the first, second, and third industrial revolutions. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And a lot of that was the job retraining and education. If you look at the past industrial revolutions, when people began to move to cities, public school became compulsory. Because while you don't need to read to shuck corn, you do need to be able to read to work in a factory, live in a city, drive a car. Yeah, absolutely. So we've established that we're going to have to retrain people and we're going to have to look at how we educate them to prepare for the next phase. But we're not doing those things as well anymore, uh, largely because it's just gotten a lot harder. It's one thing to take people who are working on a farm and, and teach them to read and write. That's not that difficult. It's much harder to take someone who has worked really hard and, and struggled to complete a bachelor's degree and say, if you really want a good job now, you've got to go and get a PhD in computer engineering. Like that's just, that's, that's a big ask. The challenge will be then how do we, how do we make sure that these new technologies serve everyone well? And I think that probably means changing what a job looks like, changing what the social safety net looks like. And that's going to be the big challenge that's ahead for us over the next couple of decades. Okay, so how do people and companies respond to this challenge? Uh, we talked about social capital a little bit at the start, and I think that'll be more important than ever in the future. And I think there are, you know, probably certain paths that people, companies, and countries will need to follow uh, to build up their own social capital. What do you What do you think about that? Yeah, it's really an interesting thing. I mean. One thing that I was really struck by in the book and in my conversation with Ryan was this idea that um, in, in rich nations, rich nations have strong social capital and, and the best way to kind of 
in a, in a weird way. The best way to spread that is to bring people in into your into these rich nations, into areas with strong social capital. But of course, that just fundamentally changes the way our cities uh, are. The we talked about the idea of space and how we how parking garages can maybe be used for housing. Part of the issue is that when you bring, if you're going to bring new people in, you're going to have to house them, and you're going to have to change the infrastructure of your city to to make it so that. I mean, we both commute in New York every single day, and we see how crowded it is on the subways and in the streets and everything. So this idea of bringing more people in is is great, maybe for the economy, and in a future where we we're going to have to spread our wealth out a little bit more fairly, but we're going to have to. New York City will look a lot different in 150 years in an automated future than it does now. Yeah, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to look completely different. Yeah, it might think, be a lot bigger, which is strange to say. But. I, th- I think that's a really good point. And I, I think a lot of it comes down to, comes down to education. Because when you talk about people moving, uh, whether you're talking about immigration um, between countries or even immigration from a small town to a big city, which is what, which is what I did within the United States, there's, you know, th- there's education that needs to occur on both sides of that um, barrier, if you will. So you have to educate the people who are already there that the new people who are coming are helping to, you know, increase the social capital of the city. They're, you know, they start businesses at higher rates. They commit crimes at lower rates. Um, they're really a boon to the society. So you have to educate the people who are already there about that. And you also have to educate people who are coming in. Um, you know, you had to teach me how to use the subway. <laughs> right. And so when we talk about cities, uh, it's it's important to note, too, that urbanization is happening much faster in developing nations uh, and re- recent research has shown that between now and 2025, there'll be an increase of 397 million new middle-class consumers in India, and also 59 million new middle-class consumers in Pakistan, 28 million new middle-class consumers in Nigeria. Um, and, and the middle class is going to be exploding in many other emerging nations as well, in, uh, in largely in cities. Um, so... The outlook, the immediate outlook for a lot of emerging markets uh, is is looking pretty good. But, of course, maybe 40, 50, 60 years into the future when automation uh, hits those areas as well, um, it's going to have a tremendous impact. Yeah, and I think that's where something like onshoring comes in. And onshoring is the bringing back of jobs from these uh, emerging nations to more developed nations like the U.S., Canada, Europe. One recent example is the carrier plant in Indiana. Um, which was going to relocate to Mexico and is now going to keep uh, operations open in Indiana, which is is good news. But it's going to keep operations open with about half of the workforce, um, going from about uh, a workforce of 1,000 to a workforce of about 500. And those uh, job losses are largely due to automation. And this is why I think when you talk about countries, quote-unquote, skipping industrialization and going straight to automation, I don't think it's very likely because if you look at um, the development theory of political economics, it states that countries will go through this sort of quote unquote like Western cycle of development before they sort of reach maturity. And whether or not you think that's correct, it is sort of how businesses are operating currently. And if you're going to invest, you know, a couple billion dollars to build a fully automated plant, you're going to do it in the most stable environment possible. So I think that's why it's really difficult to imagine countries just completely skipping industrialization and going straight into a fully automated uh, workforce. Yeah. So I think that the, the, the truth of the matter is that 
regardless of where you are in the globe, automation is going to have a massive impact. And when it comes to individuals and the impact it's going to have on them is when a machine takes over your job and you don't have a job anymore, things change a lot more than simply just not receiving a paycheck for your labor anymore. Work provides so much, though. It provides a structure to our day. It, um, We're interacting with people. We're creating things. And if we're not working, where do we get those things from? That's the other positive outcomes of work that, aside from the paycheck, obviously it, it helps us support ourselves and our families now. But we still gain so much from it. I mean, what is that? I, I just wonder what that future looks like. Well, I think... Um... To take a positive spin on that, and this is something um, Ryan mentioned a little bit, is if you if you look at you know the maker movement where people are rejecting things that are mass produced in order to pay more for something that's been produced by a human, it's almost um, if you're living in a world where everything is produced by a machine, human contact or human creation is a luxury. So. That's a that's that's one way to look at it is is this increased wealth will increase opportunities for people to pursue their passions in things like art or cooking or photography any anything that they're truly truly passionate about they'll there will likely be a market for that and we're starting to see that with things like Etsy where you know if you want to make prints of Anthony Davis the basketball player dressed as Frida Kahlo someone will buy them that person is me. <laughs> oh man, that's pretty good. That's for how many of those do you own right now? Two. I have matching ones in my living room. Very nice. They look great. Very nice. People always say time is the greatest luxury in the world. Well, if you're in this future where you have more time, if we're able to direct that time to positive ends, so towards jobs that people love or to charitable endeavors or to saving the environment, then we can really make this change positive. There is, you know, the dark side where if everyone has a universal basic income and nothing to do, you start drinking beers at 10 a.m. Right. That's an issue. Yes. But I think to focus on the positives, more time available to people allows them to kind of choose their own purpose and structure their days the way that they think it should be structured. So if you take a positive view of human nature, ideally those people would structure their days around things that they love. Right. And that sounds great. The, but of course, we're it, it's going to take time for us to get to that to to that uh, point where where society looks like that. And a big theme in Ryan's book is that that period of getting there, getting from A to B, isn't going to be very easy. Nope. Uh, and there can be some 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 bad things happening. I mean, if you look at past industrial revolutions and how and those the times from where people started getting displaced from work, and then when the, when uh, they society kind of caught back up, those time, those periods in between were very they were rife with political d- disagreements. To be uh, very that's that's quite a euphemism. To be soft about in it. In the past industrial <laughs> revolutions, we had two world wars and a great depression. Right. Yeah. But I mean, that led to the most prosperous period of economic development in human history, where you know. Two to three billion people were brought from living on subsistence farming to living in cities, having, you know, middle class jobs. Right. So, you know, we've done this before, people. Let's do it again. Yeah. But better this time. Right. The upshot of having all these magnificent new technologies is that people don't have to do 
nasty jobs that they don't want to do, and they can have all sorts of consumer experiences that should make their lives much more enjoyable, and that's a great thing. It's really just a question of how ugly is the process of getting there and how long is it going to take. This has been an Ogilvy production. Our sound engineer is Ken Meyer, and our music and special effects are produced by Alan Hotchkiss. You, you, you gonna do